Amen. Visitors, you're welcome, and I'd love everybody else to be here. I love Sundays because it's a gathering of all of God's people, and we just absolutely care and love each other. It's so obvious. Well, the title of my sermon this morning is Pentecost, Set on Fire. And my text, you'll note, is from your bulletin insert, it's a list of assorted verses from Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2. Of course, I also have a simple outline for your future reference. But first, join with me, as I always do, and I seek God's approval on this message. Psalm 1914. So, dear Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. Amen. You know, without question, perhaps the most famous, well-known name outside of politics and entertainment would be Billy Graham. One of all the stories that I've heard about Dr. Graham, probably my favorite is the time that he was going to a certain city to do one of his crusades. There were some critics who didn't particularly care for either his style or his methods. They didn't want him to come. They called the press conference and they said, if we let that man come to our city and preach his message, he will set the church back 50 years. That got backed to Dr. Graham, who smiled and he said, I don't want to set the church back 50 years. I want to set the church back 2,000 years. Every time I read about the early church in the book of Acts, I understand why Dr. Graham made that statement. When you read about the early church in the first few chapters of Acts, and then you look at the church today, you can't help but ask, what happened? You know, as a pastor, when I read that in the early church, things like 3,000 people being saved in one day, people coming together and sharing what they had with others freely, And I see the early church exploded. And then I observe ordinary people, shepherds, farmers, and and fishermen, bearing witness to anybody that would listen about Jesus Christ. I have to say as a pastor, those were the good old days. What is even more incredible is that they did it without buildings, budgets, or organizational structures. Financially, they had no money. Politically, they had no influence. And numerically, they were just a tiny fraction of the earth's population. And yet the church to this day has never seen such explosive growth and such tremendous power. And so I raise the question again, what was different? What did they have that we don't have? Now, yes, it's true that the church today is bigger than it has ever been. There are 2.6 billion people on this planet that claim Christianity as their faith. One out of every three people belong to, the, to the, one of the biggest religious faiths in the world. Yet even with the church being bigger than it has ever been, would you really say that it was better, more vibrant, more alive, more on fire than it has ever been? You know, a doctor named Luke gives us not only the answer to why the church is so different, but also gives us how we can set that church back 2,000 years. 
He wrote in the book of Acts, and incidentally, this is the most unique book in the New Testament because unlike all the other books, its main purpose was not theological or doctrinal, but historical. It's actually the second volume of a two-volume work. In volume one, the Gospel of Luke, he tells us about the founder of the church. In volume two, the book of Acts, he tells us about the founding of the church. And it is a spellbinding story of how a ragtag band of believers who no one had ever heard of became a spiritual juggernaut that turned their world upside down for Christ. And they started a movement that is alive and well 2,000 years later. But how did it happen? Here was their secret in one word, fire. This was a church that was corporately and individually set on fire by the Holy Spirit. And the book of Acts talks more about the Holy Spirit than any other book in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit is mentioned at least 50 times in this one book alone. And the major symbol of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is fire. When you read the book of Acts, you discover that Christianity spread like a fire from one place to another. And one of the reasons why Jesus came to earth was not just to establish a church, but to set it on fire. And you know that Jesus was so excited about sending this fire that he even said in Luke 12, 49, I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that were already kindled. When I look at the average church and I look at the average person who claims to be a follower of Christ, a question comes to mind. Is your Christian faith a raging fire or a dull habit? The reason why the early church was so different was because it was made up of people who were ignited by the Spirit of God. Listen, we're not going to move this world by criticism of it nor conformity to it, but by the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. And as we study the beginnings of the early church, keep in mind one thing. Because Jesus is alive, we should be ignited and excited to share with him, with the world. And we're going to see that we have everything we need to be set on fire for God. We have everything the early church had to be everything that the early church was. And here's what they had and what we have. First, we have a mission to fulfill. Luke tells us that Jesus, having been raised from the dead, has spent 40 days with his disciples. Now that they have this risen Lord on their hands, they're not sure what they're supposed to do next. He tells them, interestingly, to do nothing except Wait. They don't know it, but he's about to ascend to heaven. While they're waiting around, they ask him what seemed to me to be an obvious question. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 states, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know times or, re- or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Remember, these disciples who were Jewish still had this idea that the kingdom of God was politically and a worldly power. Their idea of a kingdom was political, national, and territorial. And Jesus sidesteps this question, and instead he makes a shocking promise. He states in verse 8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. One of the most important words in the book of Acts is the word witness. It is literally the word that gives us the English word martyr. Today, when we think of martyr, we think of someone who dies for his faith. The original meaning was someone who simply bears witness to his faith. Remember, he's talking to people who are looking at him in his resurrected body. They had put a finger in the holes of his hands left by the nails. They had taken their hands and they felt the opening in his side left by the Roman spear. But now all he was asking them to do was to simply bear witness to what they had seen, what they had heard, and what they had experienced. Keep two things in mind about a witness. On the one hand, you can experience something and not bear witness to it. You can refuse to testify. On the other hand, you cannot bear witness to something you have not experienced. This is a good time to ask yourself a question. Are you a witness for Jesus Christ? If not, there can only be one of two reasons. One, either you refuse to testify to the Jesus you have experienced, or you have never truly experienced Jesus Christ. Yet Jesus, with 100% confidence, predicted success for this mission. He did not say, you might be my witnesses, or you could be my witnesses, or you should be my witnesses. He said, you will be my witnesses. And then he went on to say where the witness would go. First, it would go to our family, our friends, and our neighbors, or in other words, our Jerusalem. Then it would go on to our community, into our counties, and into our states, which is our Judea. Then it would go to other countries and other cultures, which is our Samaria. And then it would continue throughout the world. Was Jesus right? In the 20th century, Christianity became a global faith. Christianity is now practiced on every continent of the world. So if you want the church to be ignited by the Holy Spirit, we have a mission to fulfill. Secondly, we have a mission to use, have a might to use. And Jesus has given the disciples their marching orders. They know what they are to do. They know how they're to do it. But amazingly, Jesus tells them not to go to work. But he tells them to go and wait. For 10 days, they wait. Then we come to the second chapter of Acts. We are now in the delivery room where the church is about to be born. You might say that the second chapter of Acts is the very reason every chapter in the New Testament follows. Chapter 2 represents a turning point in the history of God's kingdom. The disciples have been given a plan to carry the gospel to the world. Now they are about to receive the power to carry out that plan. Understand when Jesus announced to these lowly, common, everyday Joes that they were going to receive power, it was a stunning announcement for several reasons. First of all, the idea that common people would receive power was totally upside-down thinking. See, we live in a democratic society where political and military power belongs to the people. But in the first century, only kings possessed power. 
Furthermore, in the first century, nobody rose to power by earning it or running for office. You were either born into it or you took it at the point of a spear or sword. Finally, it was about to become obvious that Jesus was not talking about political power, financial power, or military power, but supernatural power. See, heavenly might is different from human might. God's kingdom is different from human kingdoms. This kingdom was to be spread by witnesses, not by soldiers, through a gospel of peace, not a declaration of war, by the work of the Holy Spirit, not by the force of swords, bullets, or bombs. I think it's important to note how the Spirit came and what happened when he did. So follow closely with me as I read chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speaking in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all of these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Alamites, these dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and other parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We heard them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Something happened this day that had never happened before since the Garden of Eden. The Holy Spirit came for everyone to stay. Historically, the Holy Spirit would come upon someone for a specific task or a specific purpose. Up until now, the Holy Spirit would occasionally come upon someone, but now he is permanently living in people who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two things happened on the church's birthday, a miracle and a milestone. The miracle was... Everybody heard the message of God in their own language. This happened at Pentecost, which was one of the three major festivals of the Jewish faith. Jewish people from all over the world would come on their pilgrimage to this festival. There were 14 different regions represented. There were different languages and even different dialects within those languages. And yet when the disciples spoke, they heard the message in their own language. What was the point of this miracle? It was God's way of telling the church and God's way of telling the world that the message of Jesus Christ is for everybody. The Christian faith is not just a Jewish thing, not just a Jerusalem thing, but it is a God thing. The miracle was God's way of saying, it doesn't matter what language you speak, what tribe you come from, what nationality you are, or what color your skin is. We are to take the gospel to everybody because the gospel is for everybody. That was the miracle. The milestone is this. 
Verse 11 tells us that everyone that was speaking was talking about the same thing, and that is the mighty works of God. In other words, everybody was witnessing. The only explanation for it is that everyone was using the might of God. They were simply letting the power of the Holy Spirit speak through them collectively. There are 6,909 languages that exist in this world today. God wants Jesus Christ to be proclaimed in every one of them. This is the promise of Pentecost. If you are in Christ, then the Spirit is in you, and Jesus will come out of you. In other words, when the spark of the Holy Spirit meets the kindling of the heart of God, it will unite a fire for Jesus Christ. And that naturally leads to the last thing the church had that we have. And that is, number three, we have a message to share. So now the final piece of the puzzle that makes up the church is to be put in place. And beginning in verse 14, Peter preaches the first sermon in the history of the church. You might say this is opening day. This is the grand opening of what will become the one institution that will last forever. The same message that Peter preached on that day is the unchanging message we are to preach today. It is found in four verses. Acts 2, 21 to 24 state, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Peter covers all that they needed to hear about Jesus. He talks about the incarnation, the fact that Jesus was a man, the crucifixion that he was executed by man, and the crowning point was the resurrection. And then he gives what would have been to those Jewish listeners a mind-blowing conclusion. Acts 2.36 states, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, listen, both Lord and Christ. The resurrection is the crowning proof that Jesus Christ was more than just a man. It is proof positive that he was the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, the very Lord of the universe. Listen, from its very beginning, the church was not to be built around the teachings of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the life of Jesus, or even the death of Jesus. The church was to be built around and based upon the resurrection of Jesus. That was the church's main message then, and it is the church's main message now. And after spending one verse each on the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus, Peter spends nine verses on the resurrection Peter is saying loudly and clearly to both Jews and Gentiles that this Jesus who was rejected and crucified is both Lord and Christ. To the Jews, Peter was saying, you believe in God, but you're looking for a Messiah. Look no more. His name is Jesus. 
To the Gentiles, he was saying, you're not looking for a Messiah, but you are looking for God. Look no further. His name is Jesus. Jesus' resurrection means far more than just life after death. To the Jews, it is proof of his Messiahship. And to the Gentiles, it is proof of his Lordship. Don't miss this. Peter and all these witnesses were ignited and excited by this one thing. Jesus Christ had been raised from the dead. Listen to what the crowd responds. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Listen. The question of the hour had changed. In verse 12, the crowd asked, What can this mean? Now they ask, what shall we do? Even though there were thousands of people listening to this sermon, you could hear the grass growing. Everybody was leaning in to hear what Peter would say. What did he say? Attend church regularly? Get religion? Or some like to say, it's time for an offering? No. He says the same thing I believe every preacher should say every Sunday in one form or fashion. Acts 2.38 states, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. He tells the people to repent. It is a word which means to turn. He's asking them to change their mind about Jesus Christ, to turn away from their sins and to turn their hearts toward him as the risen Lord. What will they get in return? They will get two things, forgiveness of their sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, when you receive the risen Lord in your heart, you get freedom from what you used to be and you will get the power to be what you ought to be. Now listen to the exciting conclusion to the first episode of the first church. It is the first altar call ever given in history. Chapter 2, verses 40 and 41. And with many words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. They did. What every follower of Jesus Christ is expected to do once they receive forgiveness in the Holy Spirit. Once they became Christ's followers, they were baptized. Infant baptism doesn't count, but one based on knowledge, commitment, and public proclamation does. Incidentally, this was the perfect opportunity for Christianity to be stopped dead in its tracks. In that crowd of thousands, anybody could have stepped up and said, wait a minute, Jesus is dead. I will take you to his tomb. We will open the grave. I will show you his body. But no Pharisee stood up. No Sadducee spoke up. No skeptic ponied up. Do you know why they didn't? Because they couldn't. Jesus Christ had been raised from the dead. What does this all say to us in our church? The church was never meant 
to be localized in a building or centralized in a denomination. It was meant to be energized around one event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And today, 2,000 years later, we have the same mission and the same message and the same might that can literally set this world ablaze. Amen? Listen, as we leave this place of worship, turn to our private lives, remember. Because Jesus Christ is alive, and since the Holy Spirit is here, we have to be ignited and excited to fulfill this mission. The mission of taking this message to the entire world. Our prayer should be, Lord, set us on fire. Let our light shine as bright and our faith burn as hot today as it did 2,000 years ago. And may our witness be of the one true God. As we proclaim the message in the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.